0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm going to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we'll just jump right into our text for today. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for yet another opportunity we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to gather together as part of this group. Lord, I thank you for our prayer time. It's such a blessing to be able to, to bear one another's burdens, Lord, to be able to Hear what's going on in other people's lives and to care for them, Lord. I thank you for that aspect of the body of Christ that you allow our class to be a part of. I also thank you, Lord, for your word. It is powerful, it is all sufficient. With your spirit and your word, we have all we need for life and godliness. And so I thank you for the gifts you've given us. Lord, as I begin to introduce and teach a new section of Joel, I pray that you give me wisdom. Give me the ability to articulate things in a way that is accurate and also that helps us, Lord, become more like Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited to be able to introduce a next section of Scripture, and it's actually a bigger section than I even realized. When I start studying a book, I read the entire book. But then if you know my style of teaching, since I go verse by verse, sometimes I get down into the details and periodically have to step back myself so that I don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. And so, as we begin, I'm going to reiterate things that you've heard, but this really is a critical part of the book of Joel. Joel, of course, is bringing God's message to his people of the southern kingdom of Judah, And while we don't know the exact nature of their sin, we know from the overall tone of the letter that God's people in the southern kingdom had turned away from him. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their affection. And yet they had taken God's blessings but not given credit to the one who had blessed them. And so God stepped in and got their attention. He sent locusts to completely destroy their economy. It didn't just... Destroy their material well being, it destroyed their ability to worship. Unlike us in Christ who have direct access to God in the old covenant, they had to go through the priest and the temple and the sacrifices. And you could imagine if the sacrifices are cut off, which they were because all the materials for the sacrifices were gone, fellowship with God became impossible. So God sent that judgment, wiped out everything, He humbled His people to get their attention, and the call of chapter 1, of course, was cry out to God. And as we came into chapter 2, and we developed it over time, the beginning of chapter 2, teaches about a coming judgment, I think a near fulfillment was possible, where God would send an additional invading army, but this time not locusts, but an actual nation from the north. And God was saying through Joel, if you think that was bad, it's going to get worse, and you need to listen. As we covered over several weeks, Joel 2 12 to 14 began, which continues through verse 17 this call for repentance. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting and weeping and mourning and re- and rend your hearts and not your garments, now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, even a grain offering, a drink offering for the Lord your God. In other words, even though God has destroyed you, if you repent, there was an urgency, if you repent now, God's favor can return to you. But this was to be, since this was God's covenant people, it was to be a wholesale national repentance. That's what we talked about last week, verses 15 to 17. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach or byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? In other words, this call for repentance had a national component where the nation was supposed to act quickly. Judgment is coming. Act now. You've already felt the locust avoid the army by turning to God. And they had to act in unanimity. Everyone was to come together. Even a baby that was still nursing. Even a bride and bridegroom. The bridegroom normally would have a year off of military service. There is no break here. Everybody come together. And then the priests even were told what to pray. And that prayer, as we talked last week, really was about God's glory. That people would mock his people. So, as we get to verse 18 we actually are at a turning point of the entire book. Everything is going to change. The overall theme doesn't change. But really, every commentary I read, every scholar that deals with it, every pastor that dealt with it, makes it clear that verse 18 turns a page. Whereas before, there was the constant warning and dealing with the judgment, that had come and that would come for sin, now what we're being introduced to is something that in a sense is painting a picture of the future of redemptive history. In other words, we're starting on materials that will continue through the end of the book where God is giving a glimpse through Joel of what will be. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there's a sense in which we're going to see, played out over the rest of the pages, the dichotomy of redemptive history between those who have turned to the Lord in faith and those who continue to reject the Lord. We're going to begin, even with our verse today, as I introduce them, we're going to begin to see something of the blessings that God is promising to pour out on His children who have truly turned to Him with all their heart. And then later, we're going to see something of God's judgment at the ultimate day of the Lord where His wrath is poured out on His enemies. And really as we begin this study and of this section, it's pointing, I believe, ultimately to the future day of the Lord where God settles all accounts. But I can tell you, just as I began studying these verses, I need your prayers. The text in front of us has a lot of interpretive challenges. And I would not pretend to be a Hebrew scholar. But a lot of people that I respect as godly, that love the Lord and they love His Word, read the same verses and they come up with different conclusions. If I could put it in a vernacular, it's not exactly this, but it's the equivalent of John MacArthur taught... A passage one way and Steve Kreloff taught a passage the other way and I respect them both but I have to decide on this point which one do we follow so as I get into this I ask you to pray for me certainly praying for myself I want to accurately present the truth I'm confident that whatever interpretive decisions are made we're going to get out of it what the Lord wants because I believe the application to us is easy enough for us to understand. It's deep and it's complicated, except that at the end of the day, it's always comes back to the same thing, which is what we have in Christ, and how should we live because of it. But, there are some challenging things in front of us, and even as I introduce this next section, that I said begins at verse 18 and goes through verse 27, we're going to be confronted with some of those issues. So, One final thing that occurred to me, and I wrote it in my notes, and I want to make sure I point this out. Another thing I want you to pray for is that I will apply this text correctly, and I won't go down too many side roads. And I don't mean just this text, I mean the rest of the book. And I struggle to articulate this, but as I'm reading Joel, and as I'm studying Joel, countless things flood into my mind about the truths of God and His Word and judgment, and our salvation in Christ, and not all of those thoughts come from Joel. You understand, you're reading one section of the Bible, and you think of another section of the Bible. I want to try very hard to limit my application to what Joel's saying, and not jump all over the map. And I know as I as I look at this, inevitably, I'll probably wander down a side road or two, because there's so much depth in theology here, and it's exciting But pray for me to resist the temptation to go down so many side roads that we forget we're studying Joel and you wonder, wait, what are we talking about? So I'm going to try very hard to focus, but I'm excited for the rest of our study. There's a lot here and I think it will encourage us greatly. So for now, I'm going to read this long section. and It's long. I'm going to read Joel chapter 2 and I'm going to read verses 18 to 27 and then I'm actually only going to teach The first verse, but I'm going to introduce it and I'm going to tell you what the outline will be and where we're going to go with this. So follow along, if you would, as I read, and I read from the New American Standard Version. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, behold, I am going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied in full with them. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rearguard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things." Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the tree has borne its fruit, the fig tree and the vine have yielded in full. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain, the early and latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of grain, and the, the vats will overflow with the new wine and oil. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the creeping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the gnawing locusts, my great army which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Now, as I am going to teach through these verses over at least the next couple of weeks, could take longer, I've broken it into a simple three-part outline, but it's going to be a little bit of an unusual outline. And it's because of the structure of the text. And over time, as I go through it, hopefully it will become clear. But verses 18 to 20 state something very clear about what God is doing. And verses 21 to 27 really just expound on that and explain it even more and add more detail. So my outline is going to come from verses 18 to 20, and then as we go through the rest of the verses, I think you'll be able to just see how it fits into the outline at various points, because verses 21 to 27 are really just an elaboration and an explanation and additional information about what's occurring in 18 to 20. So, hopefully... This will all come together, that we won't get lost. And so with that, here's the basic premise of the outline. And it's really sort of an informational outline, which is God's response to the genuine repentance of his people. God's response to the genuine repentance of his people. And today we're going to talk about the first point, the first response of God is this, God's compassion abounds. God's compassion abounds. I could say it overflow, it pours forth. It all comes from verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. And yet, before we even get into God's compassion, we're going to get hung up on a word, then. It's a critical word. Then is a word of translation. In English, we can clearly see this. Then. This is connecting verse 18 with what he just talked about in verses 12 to 17. Again, I already read those. God is saying, look, the judgment is coming, but it's not too late. If you'll just turn to me with all your heart, repent, humble yourselves. And what will that look like? As a nation, you'll come together. Then, and I'm not going to reread everything, but I do believe, and even the various commentators that disagree on some things all agree with this. It seems clear That by Joel's words, between verse 17 and 18, repentance did happen. It seems clear, based on the tone, what is said, the remainder of the letter, that at least to some degree, the people responded as Joel said they should respond such that when you get to verse 18, then. But here's the question. seems clear repentance did occur, but when is Joel talking about? He says, then, when is he talking about? Did the people of Judah in Joel's day immediately respond, such that everything that follows is God's express promise to them at that day and time? Or, as some would say, well, no, they didn't do it, but somebody's going to do it, so this is a promise for the future. That if God's people ever take it upon themselves to repent the way God said, then these things will occur. So that's one of the huge issues. Is everything we're reading something that applied to those individuals to whom the book was originally addressed, or is it only something that will apply to Israel in some future day when they actually do repent? In fact, you will see something of... The difference of how these words are translated and what they mean just in terms of the English versions that are out there. So I read from the New American Standard, and I'm going to reread this verse with a little bit of artificial emphasis on certain things. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. In other words, the way the New American Standard translated it is they've made a decision that what Joel is saying is pointing forward. Probably the second most read version of the Bible at our church is the ESV. It's a good translation. Several of our elders teach out of the ESV. Here's that exact same verse in the ESV with me again adding some artificial emphasis Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So what you see just from those translations is something of the dilemma facing it. The ESV would interpret that Hebrew to say he's saying it already occurred whereas you could read the New American and it would look like he's saying this will occur one day. These are why I need prayer. Because those are both good translations, and I can't just flip quarters every week. Okay, that's what it means. But, I don't think we're without hope, and I do think I understand what's here, and I would not be so clear-cut as to say it's either-or, because I think, as with some of the earlier references There's a little bit of both and in this text. In other words, I believe, based on my studies, that the people in Joel's day did repent such that some of what is here had direct application to them. However, I think it's very clear from the expansive words used that this text has not been fully fulfilled. So I think... That it would be my position that Joel's people did repent and that invasion by the northern army that was threatened at the beginning of chapter 2 did not occur, and all that the locusts had destroyed, God replenished. By the same token, however, not everything could be fully fulfilled in that generation. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 19. And I'm not trying to teach verse 19 yet. We'll get there later. But this is an illustration of what is in front of us and why these decisions matter. Verse 19 says, And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. That seems as though that's an absolute promise for all time. And you'll see that repeated again, I believe in verse 26 and 27. That might not be the exact place. I don't have it in my notes, but it's repeated multiple times in this text. But we know from history that Judah did become a reproach again. In fact, at some point after this, the Babylonian kingdom came in and wiped them out. Took them into captivity. That's where we get the book of Daniel. From human history, from then until now, many times God's people have been made a reproach. So there's a sense in which... It can't be that the words of Joel have been fully fulfilled already. So this is one of those difficult times where I believe it had a specific teaching and specific application to that generation alive, but there's a future fulfillment of this that's coming. So the framework I'm going to be using is a framework we dealt with before, which is that there is an immediate application to the people to whom... The warnings and the letter were written, but there's a future application and a future ultimate fulfillment where these things will be absolutely true, and that day will be in the coming day of the Lord, the millennial kingdom, when God establishes his throne. So let's try and reset the table. I haven't confused myself, I pray I haven't confused all of you, but I need to take a deep breath. And start over. So I'm going to reset the outline. With you having some context now for where I'm going. And it's God's response to the genuine repentance of His people. And the first response is this. God's compassion abounds. God's compassion abounds. Then the Lord will be zealous for His land. And will have pity on His people. I think God is making it clear. He answers the genuine prayers of his people who were humbled and repentant. Again, remembering the original context, Judah is devastated. It appears they were riding high, they were material blessed, had plenty of agricultural blessings, they were agricultural economy, life was good, and then God pulled the rug out from under everything with the locusts such that they were destitute. But as Joel had said, and we already read it in verse 13, Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. And again, it seems clear that the people did this to some extent, we don't have an historical account of it. There's not a separate book I could go to and say this is what happened between verse 17 and 18. But it does seem clear that God's judgment was forestalled for at least a period of time. I think the overall context does suggest that God succeeded through the locust plague and through the warnings of Joel to get his people to look up from their daily mundane things, even the desperation of their devastation, and be reminded, you are the Lord's. So there's an aspect of then that I think is accurately done by the ESV. The Lord will be zealous for His land one day in the future, but He became zealous for His land then. Interesting, when you reflect through Scripture on the special place that the geographic land around Jerusalem has in the Lord's heart. God cares about that real estate. He gave it to his people. That's where his temple was built. The land matters. One of the major parts of God's blessing and promise to Abraham was the land. The seminary had a teacher that drilled into our head, land, seed, and blessing, land, seed, and blessing, land, seed, and blessing. But land was the first part. Genesis 13, 14 and 15, this isn't the only place, but it's a place. Genesis chapter 13, verse 14 and 15. If you remember the account, Abram and his nephew Lot were dividing up, and Abram said, you pick. And so Lot said, oh, that looks good, and, I'm going that way. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. Why it's so fascinating to me is because God owns everything already. He owns every. He made it. This entire planet is God's. And yet, He chose to make a small piece of this earth in what we now call the Middle East, to be special to him. To this day, that is a centerpiece of world conflict. I remember when we were walking around Jerusalem, and there's a lot of speculation, did this happen here, did it happen there? And the reality is, nobody really knows a lot of the stuff. Why? I think I recall this correctly, although I'm getting older and so I mix things up. But I think I remember our tour guide, Kenny, telling us that for certain of the places, they had been destroyed like 17 times from the time of Jesus to now. So you can imagine, you get wiped out, you build it up. And you get wiped out and you build it up. You get wiped out and you build it up. That's been happening forever with this piece of real estate that Joel is talking about. In fact, I've always found it interesting when when Solomon finally built the temple... And he built it in all its glory. And then he was praying and blessing the temple in 1 Kings. The entire section is verses, well, there's more than this. I only put in my notes verses 27 to 30, but I won't read it all for time. Verse 28, Solomon says, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant to a supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Verse 29, that your eyes may be opened toward this house night and day, toward the place of which you have said, My name shall be there. The land that was destroyed by the locust, the land that God, through Joel, said a foreign army is going to come and wipe you out if you don't repent, that land matters to God. It's where he chose, of all the places on the earth, to put his name. So when Joel in verse 18 says, then the Lord will be zealous for His land, it's not throwaway. God has a passionate interest in that place. Because that place is where He made His name to dwell. That place is where He sent His Son to die. The repentance of God's people will arouse His passion For the land in part because it's an illustration of and evidence of his covenant. He's zealous, he's passionate, but the land in and of itself isn't the focal point of his mercy. Even though we're going to see later that he's going to restore some of the blessings to the land itself, the crux of this is the second part. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and will have pity on his people. This is where God's compassion abounds and overflows. Again, I keep coming back to this, but Judah had a special place in God's heart. When the kingdom divided after Solomon's death, it was the southern kingdom of Judah that got Jerusalem. They had the place where God's name dwelled, and yet they deserved the judgment of the locusts, and they deserved the judgment of an invading army. God had warned them through the words of Moses that if you turn away from me, you'll suffer. They deserved to be destroyed. For the wages of sin is death yet they didn't get death for their sins. They repented and in the face of repentance then the Lord will have pity on His people. God will spare them from any more suffering and harm. Again it comes back to the character of God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. I think there's a sense in which that initial generation experienced that to some extent. Now as we keep studying this, we're going to see that there's a more complete fulfillment of it. And everything I've been talking about, I'm sure if you've been to Israel then you're thinking of Jerusalem and what it looks like or if you've seen a map or if you've seen a TV show, but I'm going to tell you that there's a different evidence of a fulfillment of this text in a broader, more future sense. And I can help you picture it right now by telling you to look around the room at all the other people that are here. Or if you had a mirror, look at yourself. Because... If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are one of God's people and He has shown you pity. His compassion abounds to you and to me because the promise of Joel is really a snapshot of the Gospel. Do we deserve any less than Judah? No. The wages of our sin is death. And yet, even to this day, if sinners will turn to Jesus Christ with all their heart, if they'll humble themselves and acknowledge, before you, God, I deserve your judgment, I surrender. God is still showing pity to sinners like us. We deserve that wrath. We deserve that judgment. But because we've repented, the Lord has had pity on His people. And because of Jesus Christ, we now qualify to be a part of His people. Not because we were born Jewish, most of us, but because we're grafted in. In Christ, we become a part of God's family. We become one of His people. So let me encourage you. As you study these words, as we go through them over the next few weeks, let me encourage you. We're approaching Christmas. I didn't pick a Christmas message, but this is all about Christmas. Because God's compassion abounding is why we celebrate Him sending His Son. God had pity on us and our heart's desire should be that He'll show pity to many more people before the Day of Judgment. Let me close our time today in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by the full picture of Your character presented by Scripture. Lord, when we're not blinded by our own sin, we see so clearly how far we fall short of Your glory. Lord, we can't walk a day, we can't look in the mirror without being confronted by the continuing battle against sin that rages in our flesh. You say in Your Word, whoever keeps the law and stumbles at one point is guilty of it all. Lord, we don't stumble at one point. We trip and fall daily everywhere. And yet, Lord, You showed pity to us. Your compassion abounds to us. Lord, help us to continually reflect on that during the Christmas season. Lord, every day, help us be reminded of the mercy You've shown us. And Lord, motivate our hearts to share that mercy with others. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And we pray that as we study Your Word together over the next many weeks, that You'll help us to understand the fullness of Your glory as revealed in Your Word. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.